don't let it occur to you that maybe, you know, you don't have any schooling for it or maybe you don't have any knowledge. Like at some point, all of us had zero knowledge and we just started inventing and exploring and innovating and none of that takes anything more than curiosity. Welcome to Creative How, the podcast for curious creatives. Today we've got Liz Miller for you. She is an expressive and bold artist and person, to be honest with you. Uh, we learned a lot about art, of course, and we also learned a lot about Liz's personal perspective on creating. Her work is brave and it all stems from an amazing mindset that she's going to tell us a little bit about in this episode. So enjoy Creative How. All right, Liz Miller is here with us today, and I want to start by reading her Instagram uh, description because I think it's pretty awesome. Six foot two, ceramist, breakdancer, sculptor. Um, so I think that that's one of the most uh, distinct Instagram descriptions I've ever read, Liz. So welcome to Creative How. Thank you. Let's, uh, it's amazing. What I want to hear is the background and the origin story. I mean, because just, I don't even know where to start. You're so such an interesting person. So what, let's, let's dial it all the way back. Origin story. Wow. <laughs> um, I mean, I would talk about like where my background is from is from the Midwest. I'm from a small town and most people don't get that read or that feel from me at all. Um, I grew up in the inner city. I grew up on welfare and poverty um, and I still don't make much money, but I I think I hide it well. <laughs> and uh, my mom was a grocery store cashier growing up. She's an RN now. Um, and my father worked admissions for a college. And then now he's a freelance artist, but he still doesn't make a ton of money, but he does what he loves. And so that was kind of the background that I grew up with. And um, I remember distinct uh, moments in my childhood where uh, my father would call me into his studio, which, you know, we always somehow had a two bedroom. I don't know how, but it was not a good house, I promise. <laughs> um, and he would like pull my hair into a side ponytail and tell me to sit. And I got really used to um, being a model, basically just sitting there and zoning out and um, relaxing my body and being present so that somebody could capture me. And... Um, it's funny, the table that my family has Thanksgiving at has uh, one oil painting of me and one oil painting of my sister um, overlooking the table. And it's not, it's not a big deal. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. So can you uh, talk a little bit more about your dad? Because I feel like, obviously, we're going to get into your um, career as an artist, but that must be, must have been influential in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my father has always been like dedicated to his art in a huge way um, to the point of um, not being totally secure financially because his art is just um, a complete part of him. And I really think that's the same thing with me. But um, so my father being an artist, I just grew up with him sketching at all times. And um, he had a studio in our house. There was a downstairs bedroom, which if you live in the inner city, not the best idea because somebody might break in at some point and you're not safe on that floor. It's always safer to be on the next floor. And he painted the front and the back of his door. And he always had these strong female leads in his work. Like there was like an Amazonian, like, you know, warrior. And there was like this strange, fantastical monster. And she's like battling him on the door. And I'm like, 
that's my everyday, you know, <laughs> just walk by and I'm like, yeah, he's working on that painting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I like it. Hey, I need a lunch for school, you know, like, <laughs> but like he would also wake me and my sister up with music. And so like, we always had music like booming and he loved that, you know, like, but in the mornings he would just turn it all the way up and it would be like our wake up call and be like, okay, dad, Phil Collins, like, uh, <laughs> admittedly awake. I do that with my daughters. It's kind of dope. I do not like have any problems with that part of my upbringing. So yeah. <laughs> it just gives energy, man. Everybody does. Tack the day. Absolutely. Here we go. Yeah. And you kind of take it for granted. Yeah. Like I don't. Like that part of my upbringing, I don't question, I don't think about, but it was always like being an artist and being artistic is always okay, you know? So, was he, um, now you're, you're very uh, eclectic in terms of your expression, the, the mediums you express yourself in. Was mm -hmm. he centralized on, you said oil painting? Did he, did he go outside of that or was that his thing? That was his lane. Yeah, he's pretty specific. He does illustration and he does painting. And usually it's oil painting. Um, acrylic nowadays is like psh, up there with oil painting with all the ways that you can manipulate acrylic paint. But um, back then it was seen as much more pedestrian compared to oil painting. If you're a fine artist, you do oil painting. And that's pretty much what he does. And most artists I know, that's what they do. <laughs> I am not your typical artist, obviously, doing so many different things. And I've actually been kind of sometimes critiqued on that. Are you going to focus down? And I'm like, I'm in my mid thirties. I don't think so. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way you do it. Right. I'm like, this is who I am. And that's what I'm excited to get into, but also very nervous because I, you know, there, you're, you, you excel at, at so many different things and maybe we'll just leave it up to you, which one you're really into now. And we can go deep on that because All it's like, them. we could, we could do a three hour <laughs> podcast or actually yeah. we could probably break it up into episodes. Let's do the painting part. Let's do the um, the dance part. Let's I'm do. I'm totally the, down for that. <laughs> a trilogy. A trilogy. trilogy. That would be amazing. Cool. <laughs> amazing. I think some of that probably comes from your education, and you know, started this thing by uh, reading your Instagram description, which is, I'll say, eclectic. And I feel like your education is too. Um, mm -hmm. It seems like you've done a lot of different things, and maybe changed your mind along the way. So, can you talk about everything from, I guess, uh, grade school up until now? Yeah, that's a lot. No, it's not that much. I haven't been alive that long. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, what's funny is that I have this memory um, from grade school and my sister, she reminds me of things from my childhood that I've forgotten. And it's really funny because it's like she's giving me a gift back from my childhood. And she was like, do you remember when those neighborhood kids thought they saw us dragging a body out of the car? But it was actually this sculpture that you had made of yourself life size. And I was like... <laughs> what? And then I started recalling that moment that like, there was some art that I was making for like a play in sixth grade. And I literally got it in my head that I was going to make a life-size sculpture of myself. And so I stuffed clothes and I made like a paper mache head and I like safety pinned like shoes on there. And then like literally made sure it got to school and set it up. And I don't even really recall that because it was so natural and I was never discouraged. I, I hear stories about other people like, oh, my mom would never let me do art because it doesn't bring money in. And I was like, that's smart. But <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, there's some amazingness that happens in your soul when you're allowed to create and nobody shuts that down ever. They only encourage it. So I had some pretty crazy projects. Um, I think I also made, I don't know why I was into self-portraits. I was like very Frida Kahlo-ish for a while, but like I had this puppet that I made that was similar and it was a good puppet. Like, I'm really mad I don't have that nowadays because I was like, that was really good for like not knowing anything about anything at that time. Yeah. So, um, and then I also remember this really edgy moment in 
like middle school where I did a self-portrait. It was very good. It was oil pastel. However, I got it in my head that I wanted to have my mouth open and holding my eyeball and my teeth and my eye stitch closed, which in middle school is like, let's call CPS because this child is not okay. <laughs> but it's really like, no, this child's dad is an artist and she feels creative freedom. And I said it was a sign of determination because if you're ever going to do something like that, you were the most determined, like hardcore, bold individual. And then later in hindsight, I'm like, yeah. That's well, how, now you're, you're part of what you do day to day is teaching. How would you react mm-hmm. if one of your students kind of did that? Wouldn't you be like, I would have a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> just finding your edge. Yeah. And honestly, I would have a conversation with them and I would just have a conversation with the parent and say, this is what they created. I just want you to be aware. Um, and we probably can't show it in our showcase and this is how they explained it, but it's up to every parent. Right. But like, I'm yeah. sure you know what's going on with your kid. <laughs> we'll let you handle that. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, so Liz, I think uh, you took coursework in youth ministry and biblical studies. And I feel mm-hmm. like in some of the artwork of yours that I've seen, I feel there's definitely a lot of spirituality, um, but I would love to hear about that part of your education. Yeah. Um, so I went to Cornerstone University at or in Grand Rapids, Michigan, because that's where I was born and raised. And um, I was really involved with my church growing up. My church is not like any church I've ever found. And I have looked. I have can guarantee you that. (laughs) And I find I'm always looking for that church again when I go to different churches and I can't quite find the things that I found in that church. And it still is the same type of church. Anyways, um, being at that church, I found a lot of solace. I didn't like going home after school. Me and my father didn't have the greatest relationship. Um, wasn't a great house, wasn't a great neighborhood. So I often went to church. They had a tutoring center, they had choir, they had different things every day of the week. So I got involved and I found my community there and I found a lot of safety and um, fun at church. You know, we play volleyball and just had great relationships with other college students. And so you spend a lot of time around college students. And then, um, so when I was going to college, I didn't want to follow my dad's footsteps, didn't want to follow my mom's. I kind of wanted to find my own way. And I was like, youth ministry is great because I always want to be at church and I always want to be doing stuff. And my church was very artistic. I did um, Christian hip hop on Easter morning, had kids jumping off the stage with me, like just doing like urban culture in the church and celebrating Jesus. And I was like, what could be better than this? Like, why would I go anywhere else? So um, that background really made me want to do youth ministry. And then when I got into it and started understanding the politics involved in working in the church and also being a member of a church and the way other churches are, which I had never really been exposed to because I was always in my own church. I found that like, it wasn't necessarily the path that I wanted to go down, but I found teaching was very, you know, I learned about child development and all that youth ministry. So it fit with teaching. And I just kept that path. Like having, um, it's funny, I just saw the documentary. Well, I didn't just like a month ago, I saw the documentary about Mr. Rogers and I had no idea that he had a ministerial background. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to go in my thesis for grad school. Cause like <laughs> seeing his story and being like, you know, he wasn't a minister on TV, but he was definitely ministerial. And I feel like I am with my students that there's a spirituality component where I'm trying to know them and, you know, exercise care over them and just be authentic and share with them in a ministerial way, or at least how I understand that to, you know, mean. I think that's really great. And I think that grounding um, comes through in some of your art, obviously. And is that, do you, are, what are you saying with that? Like, what, how do you, what are you trying to exude based on that by 
putting some of the verses and and the typography in some of mm-hmm. your illustrations. How do you feel that your audience is reading that? Um, you know, I'm going to dissect that a minute. <laughs> um, not a lot of, well, artists take different tacks with whether they're concerned with their viewer or whether they're concerned with creating. And so I think that I am more interested in my own voice and trying to present the work a certain way. And um, they call it in my grad school, it's like, they call it death of the author. So like, I think the work after I've created it has a voice of its own. So I have intentions, like, you know, every singer has intentions. They put a song out there, but some of the best moments are when somebody misunderstands the lyrics and it speaks to them and it's a profound way until they find out the real lyrics. And they're like, oh man, this song is not what I thought it was, you know? <laughs> and so I like to not disrupt that. So a viewer, I want them to take the work however they take the work because they may misread my intentions, but that's not the point because the artwork has a voice. And if it stands in the gap to connect me to that viewer and that viewer finds meaning, who am I to say that that's not amazing in itself, you know? Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Death of the author is a really, really interesting concept. Um, So Liz already within, I guess, maybe 10 minutes, there's about a million things that I would love to dissect, but (laughs) I also want to get an understanding of, of the evolution of your career. Because you're obviously midstream, I guess we are too, but uh, I feel like you're learning and making, and also I'm sure you have future plans too. So can you talk about the evolution of your career? Yeah. um, I mean, I guess I would start with the education component where, I mean, I kind of was not sure that I wanted to be an artist. And so, you know, I did the undergrad at Cornerstone University ended up coming to Baltimore from Grand Rapids. Um, I was working as a teacher in the arts, or as we call teaching artist. Um, art teacher doesn't quite ring true for what I do, I think. Um, and then I started thinking about being an art therapist. And I realized I needed like 18 credits in this area and that area. And I was a self-taught artist. I hadn't actually gone to school for art. Um, so I got like 18 credits at Howard Community College. And then I was checking out the two closest art therapy programs that were certified because you have to have like a accredited type program. Um, and I didn't like them for whatever reason. There was like something wrong with this one, something wrong with that one. And I was just like, gosh, that's not where I want to spend my time, you know, getting this, you know, master's degree. And they didn't really like me that much either. So I was like, cool, <laughs> let's go separate ways. <laughs> I won't spend all this money on your program. Um, and then I was like, you know, let, why don't I pivot? and check out an MFA. And I know people that have gone to MICA, they talk about MICA. I was very anti-MICA for a couple of years. My boyfriend likes to remind me, you didn't even like MICA. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm one of them now. So whatever, <laughs> you know, resistance is futile. <laughs> but um, So I started looking at that and I was like, I really don't know enough about art and I want more skills. I'm hungry, you know? And I ended up having a conversation with my father and I said, you know, dad, do you, do you think that I could be a professional artist? Like, you know me, you've seen my work. And he said, I'll never forget this phrase because, you know, there's plenty of things that he said that I'm not on board with. And this one, I was like, wow, that's pretty profound. (laughs) And he said, um, people with half your talent make a career out of this. You owe it to yourself to try. And I was like, okay, you've seen me my entire life. So (laughs) maybe you know a little something about it. (laughs) That's going to kick you in the butt. Yeah. That's going (laughs) to, that anybody says something that knows you that well. I mean, that, that's awesome. That's an unlock. 
right? Yeah. And so he's a professional cool. artist. So I was right. like, you know, people will look at your sketchbook as an artist and be like, you're yeah. so good. You should go to school for art. And you're kind of like, yeah, but what do you know about it? Exactly. Right. Like, how good do I need to be? And, you know, like an art teacher, I really take their thoughts because like, you know, you've trained however many artists over the years. Maybe you recognize talent at its source and its root. But anyways, um, so I checked out Towson, um, sent them my transcripts. They said that in a year they could give me another bachelor's. And I was like, I'm down for that. So I went for a year, did like woodworking, metalworking, all kinds of stuff. And I had to still have work that I made during that time. And then with that portfolio, I leveraged that to Micah to look at a master's. And I was like, I'm never going to get in. Like Micah's Micah. And they were interested. I interviewed for both programs that I applied for, waitlisted for one that I didn't want. It was a full-time two-year program. I would have had to give up all my teaching contracts. I'm very invested in my students. I was like, but who's going to come in there and really be there for them like I am, you know, like maybe there's somebody great, maybe not. <laughs> but, um, anyways, so the program I wanted was low residency and studio art. So I could do whatever I could do painting. I could do sculpture. If I want to do movement, I can do that. And so, um, I got in. And so every summer I do a semester for six weeks. And so after four summers, I'll have my master's. Wow. That's really cool. And you have Amazing. a dedicated studio, studio space down there. They offer during you during the summer, during the do. summer, <laughs> but still it's a space to create that. Uh, that's awesome. And then mm-hmm. people don't realize what kind of value that is. We even ourselves are like having a dedicated space to build your craft. Yeah. That is, that is really, uh, you know, can take it to the next level versus mm-hmm. trying to like get scrappy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so Liz, you mentioned Frida Kahlo before, not trying to assume that you're, that she's a, an influence or anything like that, but you mentioned her, but I would like to talk about your aesthetic. And can you describe uh, how that's developed over the years? And even if you have individual artists who have influenced you? Yeah. um, You know, what's funny is that I was thinking about this the other day and I was, you know, talking over with a friend because as a professional artist, you're supposed to find the words to describe what you do. Like, how would you describe it? You're like, I just do it. Like, what are you talking about? And I wrote down a couple of words that really inspired me um, and that I felt encapsulated what I try to do because I don't, I don't like labeling things too much or hemming things in too much, but I just, I like getting the gist, you know, cause I think sometimes things that I do are broad strokes. Um, so I think that my work can be described as bold, intentional, new, organic, and conceptual. And I'm not sure that I would hem it in any more than that. Um, I did a paper at Towson that made me think about, um, people that inspired me and it's called an artist lineage paper. So if you had to pick the artists that were in your lineage, be based on how they interacted with society during their time, um, who would you choose? I mean, sadly, I chose all men, which I was like, mm, hindsight, maybe I should chose some women, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I chose Rodin. He really shook things up in his time. He was not accepted to any of the local art schools. He started his own because nobody would accept him. And then the other art schools started losing students to him. And then he just, it became an elite art school, but he kept it kind of open. And I was like, that's amazing that when nobody accepts you, you make your own path. And I really, you know, I have this like resistant spirit in me and I love to break rules and question things. And not everybody likes that, but, um, Picasso did the same thing with the Germans. It was like, um, I mean, also with Guernica in general, that painting Guernica, which was about this horrible, horrible situation in this town of Guernica in Spain. And Picasso was not in Spain when that town got bombed, I believe, by the Germans. And he did this painting about it for the World's Fair, and it's huge. 
And um, it was in his apartment when the Germans came in searching. And they said, oh, did you paint that? And he said, no, you did. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that spirit, like, wow. Yeah. And I've also been to France and seen um, one of his studios that he had, Le Bateau Rouge, and it's just powerful. There's like one sink in the entire place for everything. <laughs> and he said it was there that he was happiest. He went on to like paint in hotels yeah. and all that. Anyways, a couple of the artists, um, Shepard Ferry, um, specifically okay. for his protest art and... Um, his recent art where he um, had those protest posters, We the People, with three different types of um, people of color. And they were made the specific size that would be allowed into a protest for the inauguration. And he got it in the newspaper like the morning of. And no, a lot of people don't know this. He fronted six figures to get them in that paper because a Kickstarter campaign wouldn't give them the money in time to do it. So he fronted all the cash. Wow. I was like, are you kidding? Like, that's just amazing. Anyways, Ai Weiwei is amazing. If you haven't seen Netflix documentaries on him, watch them all. They're amazing. Saigo Jang as well. They do a lot of resistant type art that questions situations and stands up for the people. And I just, that's so inspiring to me. It's funny, you were going down, um, you know, how you would, you know, describe your art. I mean, based on what you just said, and I would, I would add brave. Yeah. You know, because all those, all those influences they were brave at a moment when it really counted. Yeah. And they made a statement, especially Picasso, Germans crashing in. He's, he's still talking like a badass kind of. Because he was. Yeah. So that, that's, I mean, that's what I think, uh, you know, having done some research on you, obviously leading up to having a meaningful conversation and what my assessment was that you were brave enough to try all of these different mediums. Mm -hmm. Like you asked about aesthetic. I'm like, well, what, what, what avenue are we talking about here? Because they're, they're all pretty distinct and they require a different type of aesthetic for the execution. Mm -hmm. So if we're, if your go-to, like, what do you think in primarily? Like which medium mm -hmm. is your idea? Do your ideas come to you and then it starts out in one medium and then you're like, you know, this actually would, would be a better performance piece then. Mm. Um, I think in concepts, usually, um, I mean, my, my Instagram and my Facebook feed is highly curated by me. I regularly unfollow a lot of friends and follow organizations and news outlets that I trust. And so I'll have something that I'm wrestling with and it'll start to kind of take shape with what kind of form it could be. I would say I'm primarily a sculptor in the way that I think with fine art. Um, but I do have favorite materials that I work in because it, they seem to support things that I value. <laughs> Um, like wire helps me create armatures. You have to support things underneath. And so wire, and I have a particular gauge um, that I learned about that's been highly successful. And I learned about it from another artist, Reed Beemore. He's amazing if you don't know him, but um, he does wire work in Baltimore. And so I learned about the gauge of wire that he uses and it's highly supportive, but also highly flexible. So you won't tire out your hands. Um, yeah, so I think when I come up with a concept, um, I try to think of size, space, materials, things that I'm also looking to explore. Cause a lot of times I'll be like, you know, I haven't tried anything with this medium. I might be able to make it work with this. And I like combining things together. I don't think I think conceptually with performance art because I keep my dancing and performance art separate from some of my concept and political art um, for whatever reason. Yeah. So I think, um, 
you've mentioned resistance and rebellion and activism. I know that's important to you. Um, how, how do you, it's similar to Sean's question, but maybe a little more specific. When do you have that ignition of a spark and you're like, I'm saying something about that. I'm going to say something probably constantly lately, but, <laughs> um, you know, it's really interesting because being a woman and being a person of color and talking to two Caucasian males <laughs> on a podcast. That's true. We um, are. <laughs> <laughs> that resistance is present <clears throat> in my body from the beginning because of who I am and how the world sees me. And none of us can escape what we look like, right? And um, how we present. And every day people remind me of my height. People remind me that I'm female and people remind me that I look mixed, that I'm not quite white, that I'm not quite black. And there's conversations I have or there's um, interactions I have where I have to ask questions like, why did they treat me like that? Or why did that happen that way? Or why is this guy not understanding? No means no. You know, like there's all these interactions that um, a lot of us have, um, even if you're a person who's struggling with disability or mental illness or anything like that those interactions kind of define your viewpoint because you can't escape it. And so like that activism was always present in my heart because um, social justice was something my church did. If something huge happened out in the world, we came together for prayer and we talked about things and we shared things and shared our concerns. And I was never taught to, oh, it's fine. It'll just pass over. Just let it go. Just brush it under the rug. I was never raised that way. I was raised like there's a problem. Let's deal with it. You know, and that's that's how I understand maturity and being an adult and being an advocate for others and also being a caretaker over children. Is that like, I'm not going to pretend like this child crying over, you know, whatever reason is nothing. Oh, just get over it. Oh, stop crying. Rather, what's wrong? Let's talk about it. You know, like, and so that that activism for me is a way of exercising what's happening in our world, but also a way of being there for one another, you know? I didn't really want to bring this up, but I just have to because of what you just said. I met you because you're a, a teacher of my daughter. Mm -hmm. And when she comes back from classes with you, she says things that are really powerful. Mm -hmm. And she says things that Miss Liz wants us to express ourselves confidently. And she gives us honest feedback. And she doesn't pull any punches, but she's also caring. And it's really amazing that you do that. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I love your daughter, by the way. She's amazing. Thanks. <laughs> so with all of that, I mean, I guess, are you now, is it your goal to continue to build that audience? You said you curate your Instagram, you follow the news out. Like, like, are you just, are you just trying to build on your voice day in and day out? Um, in a way, I mean, nobody believes this, but I'm technically an introvert. <laughs> um, no way. And <laughs> I just, I'm a social introvert, um, at times, but, um, I mean like my, my curating my Instagram and my Facebook is mostly to, because I look at it pretty often, it's mostly to streamline the information I'm getting and to also be connected. Um, because I don't go to a lot of openings. I don't, I'm not out there in the art world doing as much as I want to. Um, you know, Jed brought up that I, I teach at, um, a dance studio. So a lot of art events happen on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so, a sacrificial step that I've taken is that I'm committed to the kids that I teach. And so I miss art events yearly every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so 
Um, being involved with arts organization also means seeing what they're putting out on, you know, Instagram, what they're putting out on Facebook, what opportunities are coming up. If there's talks that happen in the middle of the day, that's how I stay involved. And that's also how I see my heroes. I met um, Judy Chicago this past year, and it was so powerful. I met Saigo Jang, the guy from the documentary Skyladder. Like I got to meet him and these art, these huge art people, like who do you know that has a documentary on Netflix? Like I got to walk right up to him. I don't even think he speaks English. So <laughs> I got to walk right up to him. I was like, he's a Chinese national. Like he probably doesn't need to speak English. And I got to shake his hand before um, the Firefly pedicabs did this wonderful um, like ballet um, on the promenade in Philly. And he, it was all his work. And I got to walk right up to him. He had no security. He just had you know, museum officials. Wow. So like wow. for me, that would, that's what keeps me going. And that's honestly the point of curating the feed. It's not necessarily for others. I do network with people and I try to always be open. That's my Midwest. Like if somebody wants a relationship with me and they reach out to me, I will always reciprocate so long as they're not a toxic person, because I strongly believe in putting good energy out there. If somebody needs mentoring, if they want to mentor me, like I'm down, like, let's go. Like I need some help, but um, yeah. Those are not the actions of a social introvert. Those are the actions <laughs> of a true. brave person. I got to tell you. Well, I think, you know, introvert gets a bad rap. Just yeah. to be honest. And like introvert basically means um, how you recharge. So like after I'm done teaching, I don't like any noise. I drive home with no music. I come home and it's very dark. And even in the mornings, there's nothing on. I like listening to silence. And so I recharge <laughs> by being alone. And I lived alone for probably a good 10 years of my life. And I loved it man could not get enough of it i get that there's there are <laughs> days easy, like easy killer no the, the the 40 minutes drive home with nothing oh, yeah. on oh, yeah. is delicious it's kind of an unlock <laughs> yeah. and then just going from city to a little bit of uh you know ruralness was also an unlock too but then i don't get silence at home but that's true that's yeah. true um liz the two questions that here i think uh that are probably going to be interesting to aspiring or current artists. One is your editing process when you're evaluating your own work, work in progress, when you maybe don't like something, what do you do? And secondly to that criticism, how do those internal and external forces change your work or influence your thought process? Mm. So the editing process, um, you know, I would say it's really intuitive for me. Um, you know, I thought about uh, some of the notes that you sent me that we were going to talk about. And when I got to the editing process, I just left it blank because I was like, I'm not really sure that I actually fully understand my own editing process. Um, I do trust my own taste. Um, however, in grad school, you know, you go through 45 minute critiques in grad school. So you make a body of work. And after six weeks, you sit in front of all your peers and the mentors of the program and the head of the program, and they talk about what you made for 45 minutes and you answer questions. And it's not really that difficult for me. However, I've watched people crumble <laughs> under that criticism. Right. So for me, um, I guess I think about dance and how dance, you face yourself every day. You know, like literally as a teacher, I am two feet from the mirror. So if I have some issues with myself, <laughs> like I'm going to get over that real quick. Right. Um, so I think of, I think of those lessons that I've learned from dance, having to face myself. There's days I don't feel beautiful. There's days that I'm looking at my movement and I'm like, what are you doing? But I'm with children and they don't judge. So I'm okay. <laughs> but um, 
I think of that in relation to my art and I come from a very secure place, you know, and I think everybody has a mountain of secure insecurities that they deal with. But in general, I come from a secure place where I'm like, it's not a question whether I'm an artist. It's not a question whether my art is good. There's no question about that. I mean, what does it mean that art is good? But it's not a question that my art is interesting and people want to see it. It's a matter of, can it be tweaked? Is there other ways to present it? And so I personally never have a problem with critique and I actually welcome it. However, I also think about people's backgrounds. You know, if somebody Kind of like what you said about your dad, you know, like that was valuable coming from an artist. Absolutely. That's exactly the difference. So I am going to school at a predominantly white institution. Um, I chose it. I want the name and I know that name will unlock doors. And it also is of extremely valuable education. However, the majority of what I make there is race work. And a lot of those people probably don't have to deal with talking about race ever, depending on the circles that they walk in. And that's totally fine. And that's a privilege that they have. However, I'm an advocate and an ally and a person of color. And I talk about race on a regular basis. I also work in a program that's 95% African-American. So my my little artists that I work with in my after school program, race is an issue and there's lessons I need to teach them. And there's there's life-saving lessons that I'm teaching them. You know, don't act stupid in front of police and don't do this because you don't get as many chances as everybody else. So for me, that content, when I'm getting critique on it, I have to realize the background of the people who are giving me that critique. And so um, it's not that I don't take it as seriously. It's just that's one audience. Yeah, so. it helps you weigh what's take, yes. what, what to take away, mm-hmm. what to kind of disregard. Yeah. And to just say, you know, like, you know, if that person also made race work, I know Caucasian people that make race work and I find it really interesting. And I think there's place for everybody at that table. Um, But somebody like that, I'd be like, okay, so you're really familiar with this content and you've done your own research. Your words mean something different to me. So, yeah. All right. So I want to get into a little bit into your day-to-day approach and routine. And and again, you get into so many different things. I want to know how you pick and choose your flavor that day, basically saying, I'm going to create in this lane today. I mean, is it, how does that all come about? What's that process in your head? You know, when I was thinking about my day-to-day approach, um, I actually did not think about my work specifically. I thought more about um, my body because I make so much work that's related to the body and on the concept of the body And it's something that I kind of think about. Obviously, performance art is all about the body. And I analyze, you know, the movement and the shapes that we're making. Um, But it's kind of weird that I think about um, my health mentally, emotionally, physically. And I try to be extremely self-aware. If something upsets me, I want to know, like, what? why was that so upsetting for me? And what do I need to do to kind of restore myself in order to be there, you know, for the rest of my day? And so I guess, like, honestly, for my routine, I think about my health, what I'm putting in my body, my exercise, my rest. That's mostly what I think about when I'm thinking about um, my day-to-day approach to my art, honestly. Um, I'm never not really thinking about my projects. I'm always thinking through and problem solving. And then if I happen to be you know, near a certain store or I have different places that I, I find resources, I dumpster dive a little bit. I have like one dumpster that's like my favorite dumpster. It's like the giving tree. It just continues to give. That's it's a great quote. It's behind the studio actually. So okay. Anybody. I won't. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they know about it actually. <laughs> but um, so whenever I'm out in different 
kind of places where I get resources from, I'm always thinking of different supplies I need for different projects. And so if I see an opportunity, I'm like, yes, I need that for this. Like last night I bought a very tiny silicone mold for a little anatomical heart <laughs> because it's going to be a part of a project that I have yet to make, but I'm thinking about, and I almost have all the supplies to kind of start making. How yeah. many projects deep are you in your brain right now? <laughs> I, I, is there a little, um, some There's pack, pack cotton stuff? Like yeah. I will use this someday. I know. Well, I mean, as an artist, it's like, you never know what you need. Like yeah. for Halloween, I made, well, I improved upon this unicorn headdress that I had yeah. and I made it um, light up. And then when I was wearing it, it was kind of painful because it was made out of wire. And I was like, you know, that foam that I have in storage, that foam, I could have hot glued on the inside of this and I would be less feeling like I want to be in tears <laughs> for wearing this. So, <laughs> I mean, like those little odds and ends. Yeah. I don't think I'm ridiculous with it because I actually threw away a couple art projects that I was like, I love you. You're too big. Bye. Like, I just had to get rid of them. So. <laughs> I've always thought that being an artist on Halloween might be one of the hardest things there is in the world. <laughs> Paralyzing, you know all the yeah because the, you, things the you expectations could make. are so high. The ideas are probably like I could make infinite. everything, so I can't make anything. Right, right. <laughs> Honestly, though, I think some artists one they think conceptually, so there's something super obscure, and it's like you don't feel competition with everyone being creative out there because there's so many levels of creativity and what it means. And so an artist would go as something as a lot of people don't even know, or they go way, way far, right? Because Halloween is kind of, I don't think of Halloween as necessarily being pedestrian, but it's kind of a free for all for everybody, which I don't know. I feel like everybody can be a part of that creative conversation. Where does Halloween rank on your, on your moments or holidays or whatever you want to call them? I mean, I have a lot of fun because I'm also a face painter. So depending on, <laughs> depending on like the year and I work with kids, so I have an excuse. Oh, oh, I'm yeah. dressing up for the kids right. or whatever. <laughs> but it was really funny because um, Jed's daughter reminded me of a moment. It's so funny. People remind me of moments and I'm like, oh, that did happen. So I had an internship while I was at Howard Community College doing abnormal psych. And I had an internship at a psychiatric hospital. And I went every Saturday and just spent time with people that were there and observed them, would ask about different disorders that people had. Like, I would diagnose this person as this. And they're like, yeah, actually they have that and they have this. And so on Halloween, I was like, obviously I don't want to be something crazy because like, that's scary, like going in there and I don't want to mess with anybody. But I was like, I could be an animal, you know? And I was like, and, and I started thinking about it. And I said, these people are inside here and they don't leave. And so the, the holidays that happen outside of here, they're not a part of that. There's no trick-or-treaters that come here. They don't get to see all these kids walking down the street um, just because of something they're struggling with, right? And so I was like, you know, me wearing a Halloween costume in this area is kind of bringing Halloween to them. Because what? They have some crappy decorations on the wall and that's how they know the holiday, you know? But I was like, I kind of want to dress up. And then like the people that were there, it was funny, the people that were working there, I was like, guys, I just, I was going to get in my car and I was dressed up as a deer. So I was like, I was going to get in my car and come here but instead I just took off into the woods and I got here so much faster. And they just looked at me like, hey. and I was like, whatever, you missed it. <laughs> All right. Well played. Well, played. <laughs> well, obviously you're, you know, you, you've, you've taken up the, the master's residency. And I think that says to me that you're constant, constantly evolving. And is that, is that the plan? Just, do you feel like you're just learning new and greater things every day to kind of bolt on and, and shape who you are as an artist? Yeah. I mean, like 
I would always think that the greatest artists are that way. Like every, every situation you're learning something, you're never above anything. Um, yeah. So like the, the masters of, um, or the MFA that I'm pursuing is definitely interesting. And it's, um, it's cultivating in me a different way to view myself also as an artist. I take myself much more seriously than I ever did. I always took myself seriously with dance because I really love teaching, but it's just, it's changed how I see myself. And it's also changed um, how hungry I am for knowledge. So when I see artists coming to town, I look at their background and I go listen to them. I go hear them. Like I, I got to, I got to listen to Carolee Schneeman um, this year. And she is super cutting edge. Like the stuff she did, look her up if you don't know, but she's a feminist pioneer. And to be able to, you know, sit at the feet of an elder and to listen to what they say and to be able to get that knowledge. And some of these artists that are traveling around are like in their seventies. It's like, if you don't go see them now, when are you going to go see them? You mm-hmm. know, like, yeah. and there's so much knowledge. They have these rich careers and like, um, like learning is so important to me. Amy Sherald said something, um, to my class. We went and got to see her studio. She just, I think she just moved. I'm not sure if she moved out of the city or out of state or whatever, but I know she just moved, but we went to see her studio at the motor house it's across the street from the grad building. And, um, she talked about like visualization of your future. She was like, I always knew I would be here because I visualized it and I took steps towards it. And it was a matter of the world catching up to me being a great artist. And I was like, ballsy, I'm loving that. But I started realizing that if I want to be like Weiwei or Psycho Jang and be on that level, visualizing it and believing it helps with actualization and all that. So that lifelong learning component is in there. So, and you're not the first person to actually say that to us. Every mm. it's, it's funny. We, we talk about how these common threads are starting to develop as we progress in this sort of investigation uh, with these podcasts. And the, I think off the top of my head, it was a Lego entrepreneur that uh, he lives in like decide, picture it, what, what you want it to be. And then you work back. Yeah. To get that. J.K. Rowling does that yeah. with her stories. <laughs> she gets the right. ending and she walks it back. Just saying. It's incredible. <laughs> it does. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a no brainer actually. And then you're just kind of like, it, yeah. it does, but it just, I mean, I'll just admit, I don't always do that. So it can't be that no. much of a no brainer. I'll start doing it. Yeah, you're right. God, finally, after all these years. <laughs> there was a breakthrough tonight. Boom. Um, so some of the things that, uh, we talk about also Sean and I about um, artists and creatives is, you know, getting acknowledgement that your work is good. So can you talk about, and you said good is a really odd way to express something like that. So maybe that's not the right word, but can you talk about some of your proudest accomplishments? Yeah, I've had some, had some doozies over the years that like, sometimes I think like, oh, it's not a big deal. And then I'll talk to somebody else who's I view as being in a similar position as me. And they're like, no, never seen any opportunities that look like that. And I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe, maybe it's really special what just happened. So um, as far as proudest accomplishments, I would say uh, in 2002, I went on a mission trip with my church, my church from back home. And I got to perform in Liberia, West Africa. And we performed the first dance that had ever been performed with the church that we were connected with there. But that church is a very pivotal center of their community. And that church is where their declaration of independence was signed in their capital city of Liberia. And Liberia is a huge, you know, country for um, slaves that were returned back. Um, And they also returned them to Ghana because they had bought them from separate areas and they were worried about 
bringing slaves back to where they came from because they were sold from there, you know, mm. and they might just perpetuate the process. We just gave you these guys. We're going to sell them back. You know, mm. like it's kind of intense. But um, I would say my first solo show at Micah, um, which happened after my first summer in grad school, I'm headed towards my third summer. So I'm a third year now. Um, but I got, I made some work that summer and then I was like, you know, my program head was like, apply for all the shows. And I was like, what? <laughs> she was like, <laughs> expect 10% return. And I was like, okay. And I'm doing better than 10%. So I'm like, all right, it's awesome. So that's kind of reassuring. I like to use the term successful. It, it feels successful to have people want to show my work because they find meaning in it as well. I mean, of course, an artist finds meaning in their own work, but it's good that others are like, there's something here that needs to be seen, you know? Mm -hmm. um, my first solo show out of state, Happened, I think, like a year ago. I've only been showing my work for like a year and a half. Um, I think I've shown here and there when people requested it, but I'm actively showing right now and I have multiple shows going. And sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, I got to go get that crap out of that restaurant. I'm like, ooh, how long has that been there? Like, <laughs> you know, and people contact me like, could you come get your stuff? And I'm like, oh crap, okay. Yeah. But, are you, are you, um, I'm sorry. Are you, mm -hmm. are you showing just generally in Baltimore and Maryland and kind of the DMV kind of, are you showing everywhere? Yeah. Showing everywhere. <laughs> everywhere that they will let me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, has it, has it gone beyond this region? I mean, it has actually, um, I started setting goals and, um, this summer Holly Bass came and spoke to my program. She's a performance artist and she does race work in DC. And she was like, you know, if you're going to apply for the Ruby artist grant or something like that, I do not take you seriously unless you've shown internationally. And she was like, we don't care if it's a piece of crap show in a closet in Paris. You showed in Paris. Mm -hmm. She's like, get it on your you know, curriculum vitae and get it in here. You know, because if you haven't shown out of your region and then also out of the country, we don't really take you seriously. You yeah. know, and it's like, yeah. And so I started thinking we have professional development goals that we have to set. I was like, showing internationally is one of those goals. And so one of my proudest moments is that I got into a show in London and I'll have two books that I'm sending over there um, that are collage books, just magazine collage. And they're going into a surrealism show at the Elizabeth James Gallery. And I'm kind of excited about that. Congratulations. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Thank awesome. You. Yeah. So we can't uh, skip over the one. We were talking, quote unquote, off air. You were in Lynchburg yesterday. Yeah. Will you please talk about that? Because we just thought that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So um, I applied to this juried exhibition at the Riverview Art Space. Um, and my friend, my colleague from the program, Nugent, lives there. And so she was like, yeah, that space is great. Because I was like, is this legit? Like, <laughs> I don't want to like pay this submission fee if it's like, meh. Um, and she was like, no, it's great. Apply. I was like, okay, thank you. And I applied. And I heard that 130 artists applied along with one of my other colleagues um, who also makes race work. And the juror, um, his name is Terrence. He's a curator at the National Gallery of Art. He works with a curatorial staff, educational um, program there. And I looked at his work and he has, um, he does work about lynchings, whether it's, it's with like, photography, historical photography. I'm not quite sure what he does with it, but he's really deep into race work and what that means in activism. And I was like, man, this person probably understands what I'm trying to do. So I sent one of my newest works that I'd made during my second summer, um, hopefully to get in. And only 23 artists were chosen. And I was one of the 23. And I 
drove a long time last night. It's only a three, like a four hour journey. It was six hours because it rained. <laughs> I was like, ah. So I got there probably 30 minutes before they were going to close. And I talked to him and it turns out that I got honorable mention, which there's first, second, third place, and then one honorable mention usually. So I got fourth place out of 130 artists. Amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. And there was no other sculpture in the show. Everything else was like paintings. And then my weird piece, I got to tell you, it's embroidered thread on top of hair stretched out like a web. <laughs> like it's okay. some weird stuff, but cool. it's pretty powerful. <laughs> well, you, could you send us a picture of that? We, we, yeah. we put out show notes. Definitely. People need to get eyes on this. No question. Yeah. I bet it, that drive can. home was a lot faster. <laughs> I had a long dinner. Before. <laughs> I was like, Oh my gosh, I need to erase that memory. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, speaking of hair. Yeah. I personally think that's a distinct medium. How did that, how did, how did that come about? Um, in a lot of African-American families, and I consider my family African-American, though it is mixed race, um, but we've lived a very urban life and went to a church that had a lot of gospel music and a lot of different stuff. So um, hair and braiding is a part of life. Um, whether you have boys or girls or whatever. Um, and so like I grew up, you know, we would sit on the step and my sister loved to braid and she was very good at braiding. And I would sit between her knees and I would lay my head on her leg and she would brush out my hair and she would braid it up in the summer. And it was a way of staying cool. It was a way of not having to do your hair every day. And um, I mean, for a lot of African-Americans, it's more of a protective, uh, protective way of um, wearing your hair. Because if your hair is out, if the climate is too dry, your hair can break off. And so it's a it's an act of love in a lot of ways. And so when I thought about making race work, it seemed like the most viable conduit to communicate things. Um, I have gotten some feedback, probably only one mentor mentioned that it could be seen as negative because I guess a lot of grad students use hair. And I was like, this is not a temporary situation for me. Like hair is really powerful. And I also do my own you know, the styles that you see women wear, they usually go to a salon. I can do my entire head myself. And so I go buy the hair, I select it, and I'll do my hair myself just for self-expression. Um, but I find that it's a really powerful conduit. And it also um, is a barrier in some ways. And in real life, hair is a barrier, especially for African-Americans. We have, you know, only recently did the military allow um, African-American hairstyles that are protective. Otherwise, if you're African-American, your hair is going to break off while you serve this country. So, you know, you could risk your life, but you can't protect your hair. You know, <laughs> like it's mm -hmm. just an interesting issue that yeah. um, mm -hmm. comes up when you use hair. So, Okay, well, Liz, let's get to the meat of this show. And, and really, one of the big reasons we have you here um, and one of the big reasons people listen to this podcast is we want it to be utilitarian. Right. So somebody gets inspired by what you're saying they say, hey, that, that sounds like that could be for me too. I'm brave. I'm all these things that you described yourself. What are they doing when they turn off this podcast, either in the car, when they get out the next morning? What are the first three to four things that they absolutely need to do? And they can be granular. They can be like, you need to go out and take a walk or go follow this one person on Instagram. We've had everyone say different things. So for you, to, as an artist, what are those things you would recommend them doing? It's mm. really good. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess what I see is the biggest barrier to people creating is self-doubt. 
and this critic that resides in all of us. This isn't good enough. That's a dumb idea. I shouldn't do that. Why me? I'm not even talented, blah, blah, blah. All this negative self-talk, right? And um, I would say you got to turn that off. Don't let it occur to you that maybe, you know, you don't have any schooling for it or maybe you don't have any knowledge. Like at some point, all of us had zero knowledge and we just started inventing and exploring and innovating. And none of that takes anything more than curiosity, you know? So I think that negative self-talk is the biggest barrier that I see to friends of mine who are extremely talented. I'm like, man, you can give me a run for my money, but you don't have the confidence to step out there and create or step out there and put your work out there. So I would say that's the biggest thing. Um, Honestly, I would recommend a book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. It is powerful for an artist at any step of the journey, but it is exceptionally powerful for an artist at the beginning. And it has a spirituality component, but it's non-specific, which is really nice. Um, And it talks about nurturing your creative spirit. It talks about like a morning routine of like morning pages and just writing whatever's on your mind for two pages or three pages every morning. And then your mind is clean as you walk out in the world. And I think for somebody who is just getting that power in them and that ambition to go out there and create, that would be a great starting point and that feed to come into their mind and to hopefully allow them to create as they're ready. That's great. What about in terms of your conceptual development? What would you recommend in, in just getting it out? Do you, do you quickly sketch things? Do you, do you have a, a, a method that you use that keeps track of all the great ideas that, that you're sort of creating? I mean, I don't, um, I just, I mean, like I do sketch on occasion, like I have to for grad school, (laughs) like my mentor will be like, so what are you thinking about? And I'm like, here's eight pages of sketches because, um, you know, verbally explaining something can be a (laughs) non-starter, especially when we're talking about something visual. However, my advice to somebody else would be, um, would be to just allow yourself to create. Cause I think a lot of times we are like stuck or afraid or anything like that. And it'd be like, no, 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 whatever idea you have, it's good enough. And that's what you need to focus on. Whatever comes up for you, that's a valid thought. That's a valid idea. That's a valid vein of investigation to go down and just see what happens. Like for me, I mean, I've been thinking about one of my series for a long time And the more I think about it, when I have downtime, I'll be like, oh yeah, I got to make my ladies. Those are my ladies that I want to create. And then I start finding other pieces. I should make some super tiny and some really big, you know, and all of a sudden I have another vein that I want to go down. Um, So I never don't have them rolling around up here. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. I think one thing that just caught the investigation part of it, Mm -hmm. you know, being brave enough to start something that could lead to something else. Right. It's, it's that momentum, that first initial momentum forward. Yeah. And, and it, if I could just summarize, it's just start doing it. Yeah. Don't think of all the reasons you can't do it or you won't be able to do it. Right. Just try it. And I would say stop with the expectations too. Because yeah. sometimes I start a series in my mind and I'm like, I think this is what it's going to be. And it ends up, I never actually create it, but inform something else I'm doing. And I'm like, we can't get too caught up with, oh, I have to make this and it's going to be an exhibition. It's going to be six pieces. It's like, it doesn't have to be that. It's an idea. 
And whatever it's meant to be, it's going to be. So holding your ideas loosely, like, oh, I'm a failure because it didn't actually come to fruition. It did in a different way. It informed something else. And it's something that you had the guts to do. And then you had the guts to do this other thing. And that's actually what its purpose was, you know? So all these expectations of this is what it's supposed to be. And if it doesn't become this, I'm a failure. You know, like all that negative talk, right? right. Let it be what it's going to be. It's very intuitive. It's very loose. It's everybody works differently. There's no blueprint. There's you and acceptance of you and acceptance of your process and how you do things, which is okay. And it's acceptable. Now you mentioned education and you being self-taught, but now you're going back and getting a later degree. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend our listeners do in terms of an education standpoint? I would recommend that they listen to their heart and listen to who they are and um, have friends all over the map, friends that are educated, friends that are not, because honestly, your wealth of knowledge is all around you. You know somebody who knows about this and talking about your projects or sharing on social media. Somebody will chime in. You know who you need to talk to. You know where you need to go. Have you heard of this resource? You know, we have so much information all around us. Um, I think if you want to get more information in a quick fashion, you know, something like woodworking, like, hello, you're going to need heavy machinery that costs thousands of dollars. That's helpful to go to a college to do that because they have all the machines and it's amazing. Uh, but you don't even have to do that. We have workspaces nowadays where you can get certified in woodworking and you can do it in local maker spaces. So I would say follow your heart. If you think you need it, do some research on it. Look at some programs. Um, if you're interested, great. It is powerful, but it's not for everybody. And I don't think anybody should feel obligated. You know, you can make incredible work. I mean, the American Visionary Arts Museum is based on people who don't have education backgrounds, outsider artists, right? And the work there is incredible. It so, is. It really is. It's one of my favorite spots in Baltimore. Yeah, it's beautiful. Right? It's awesome. I think, Liz, something that Sean and I have talked about before, too, is called imposter syndrome. And it's, um, yes. I have to say, listening to you, I'm sure you've been through a lot of uh, mental challenges as to whether or not you think you're good enough, quote unquote. But at the same time, you've got a lot of tools right now that you're using that are awesome. And like people here believe in yourself or something like that. And they're like, well, that's easier said than done. But what you're saying is don't stop because of some individual thought, keep following through, whether it's a specific idea or your belief in yourself as an artist. And it's very, very positive. And it's a really interesting perspective that I think is very challenging to actually have when you're a creative person. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a uh, pretty enlightening for me. So what's next? <sighs> For me, um, <laughs> so much. Um, I actually have a show that's, or I have a, two books that I'm sending to London. So I'm trying to launch internationally. Um, I was told that it's really important to at least show internationally and it does not matter where it is. You just have to find a way. Um, I have an application into a festival in Indonesia that I'd like to send some stuff over. So like, that feels um, international. Yeah. It's like super international. <laughs> I, I was like, this is weird. <laughs> we are international. <laughs> and the work that I'm trying to send over there, I was like, it's a festival. It's outside. What kind of work can I send that won't get damaged? Like it's Indonesia. It's really wet. So huh. I have these like um, printed drawings on fabric that I would like to have a, um, a clothesline between two trees and to hang them up. And they're kind of a narrative about life. So I was like, get creative, Liz, come on. Like, we got to figure this out. I don't want anything damaged, but, um, so I have some shows that are coming up that are pretty serious. I am also looking at, um, 
just changing my financial situation and changing um, what I'm doing in order to keep creating work in the way that I want to. So I'm looking at pursuing a second master's during my thesis year for my current master's, and it would be an MAT, um, which is a master's of arts and teaching. And that would allow me to be certified, but also have um, those teaching courses that I haven't had. And I'm, I'm an academic in a lot of ways. I just really love learning. And so like, that's why that super appeals to me. It's, it's not for everybody, but for me, I'm like, wow, that's like nerding it up. Let's do that. Um, you know, what's funny is I was actually dispelling some of these artist myths that we have, like artists, um, you know, we struggle with self-confidence sometimes, but then we also have old work, you know, so I have old work that I made before I was, um, you know, an artist who had, you know, an art and design degree. And now I'm, you know, getting my master's. And so I've started digging back into old work and like relooking at it, rediscovering it. And a lot of people say, oh, all my old work, I burned that. And I started fresh and all of that is crap. And I'm just like, I don't believe that. I was going to ask you about yeah. like what, and, you know, just when we were back talking about the evolution and everything, like yeah. what your opinion of yourself two years ago, three years ago, how, right, how or 10 that? years ago, yeah, I have a show at the Artist Emporium right now. The opening is later this afternoon, <laughs> so I have to drive up there to Harvard to Grace. But there's eight watercolors that are um, have a spirituality component, and I made them before, like 10 years ago. I've never shown them, and all eight of them got into the show, and I'm hoping maybe I could sell one or two or whatever, and I've made prints before. And um, these books that just got into the show in London, I made those 10 years ago. And I've been working on them for like 10 wow. years, like tweaking them. And so for me, that's, you know, that's part of that rule breaking. We're taught, oh, your old work is crap. Or you listen to other people say that, or they say, you know, you never go backwards. Only look forward distracts from the now, you know? <laughs> and I, I don't believe that. I look at my old work and I go through it. And if they're drawing exercises, I'll be like, eh. But if it's something that I'm like, there's something here, there's some richness. Um, we condemn our past selves oh, who I was then, and I didn't understand these things, and I blah, blah, blah. You did the best you could at that time with what you had, you know? And I think as a performance artist, that's something that we learn. Like, I find it very precious when I make a dance with my students. We will never be the people that we are in this moment again. And this dance lives in this moment. And we record it. And that's the best that all of us could do at that time. That's the best that I could choreograph. That's the best music that was going on at that time. That's the best these little 10-year-olds could do. And it's precious, for what it is, you know, and yes, we improve over time and that's mm -hmm. amazing. But to negate the past steps of your journey is a yeah. disservice to everything that led to this point. And then you don't have to apologize for anything. Absolutely. That's great. Uh, this is, I think is a really good place to, to stop because I'm like fired up right now. <laughs> I'm like, I want to go out and do something because I've just literally <laughs> learned a lot during this whole time. So thank you, Liz. But we would love for you to tell people how they can uh, find your work, uh, website, social media, all that stuff. So yeah, absolutely. So I have a website, um, lizannmiller.com and no E. And um, I also have two Instagrams. So I have a personal Instagram that is Juno Valencia. And then I also have kind of a more art related, art specific Instagram, which is Liz underscore Miller underscore productions. Um, I'd love for you to follow me. I'd love for you to comment. I'd love to have conversations online. It's awesome. So, yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. This was awesome. My pleasure. Thank you, Liz. Wow, Jed. One of the most inspiring episodes yet. And I realized that I got to deal and get myself in the right frame of mind before I do 
anything. And that's, that's, that's Liz's number one tip. Yeah. I think Liz was, uh, amazingly insightful in terms of her mindset, like you said. Um, and also the educational, um, aspect of what she does was really, really enlightening. So I loved it. It was great. All right. Well, uh, we have show notes up at creativehowpodcast.com. And also, as always, follow us on Creative How Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Hey, Jed, did you hear our kick-ass intro music? Shockingly, that's out of our technical wheelhouse here at Creative How. That type of sick sound design is a White Noise Lab original. White Noise Lab is a music composition and sound design studio that works with agencies, production companies, and brands on projects for film, broadcasts, interactive websites, corporate videos, video games, and experimental projects. The chances that that movie trailer you just saw on you know YouTube, that's probably a White Noise Lab original more often than not. So whether you're looking to fulfill your sound design needs or simply need someone to collaborate with on an experimental project or maybe an experimental podcast, Check out whitenoiselab.com. That's whitenoiselab.com.